You are listening to the Ingenious Podcast, where God's word is shared to build undisputed champions and mighty redeemers. This message is brought to you by the Ingenious Network. Enjoy the message. Praise God. I'm going to feel ready for God's word. Hallelujah. Thank you, Father. Shall we pray? Father, your name be exalted forever. Thank you for this blessed evening. We honor and praise you. Blessed Holy Spirit, we welcome you and acknowledge your preeminence in this place. Brood of our hearts and prevail over us. Thank you for enlightening our eyes and opening our eyes. Thank you for the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. Thank you, Holy Spirit, for your glorifying ministry and your testifying ministry to glorify the Lord Jesus and to testify of him. Thank you that your ministry is abundant, is manifested tonight. We praise you forever. Thank you, Father. In Jesus' name, the Son of God. Amen. Hallelujah. Praise God. Praise God. Can I see your enthusiasm? Praise the Lord. One more time, praise the Lord. Hallelujah. I know some are coming. Our mothers are here, but the young men are not here. Hallelujah. But I know they will join us to the glory of God. Amen. So this ministry, for the past four years, I think that has been considering the subjects of redemption in its various aspects. And this year, we are considering working the great works of God. The works that should follow the redeemed. The works that should follow the redeemed. That's our consideration this year. And tonight, by the grace of God, we want to consider the works that should follow the redeemed, but more of the fruits of redemption. The fruits of redemption. My focus tonight is more of the redeemed. The one who is redeemed becoming an evidence, becoming a manifestation of the Lord's work. The one, the believer who has been redeemed, he being the evidence, a proof producer, he being a testimony of the Lord's work. That's what I want to concentrate on tonight. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. Hallelujah. Are you ready? Yeah, because um, before you manifest his works, your life must testify of it. And your life bearing the testimony itself is his work. So your life must be an evidence of what he has accomplished for us, what he has done for us. Yeah. That's what the Bible tells us that the Bible says that but he are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, and holy nation. The Bible says we are a peculiar people called out of darkness 
to show the praises of him who has called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. Yeah. So in First Peter 2 verse 9, the Bible says that we are called to display. The King James says the praises of him. But Amplified said we are called to display the excellencies. The excellencies of him who has us out of darkness into his marvelous light. So what it means is that your life must display his excellencies. Praise God. Praise God. Yeah. So the believer, first and foremost, must be a living witness of the redemption. A living witness of, of the redemption of Christ. That is why in 2 Corinthians 3, verse 2, the Bible says that we are the epistles of Christ. Apostle Paul said, for as much as ye are manifestly declared to be the epistles of Christ, ministered by us, written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God, not on tables of stones, but on fleshly tablets, tables of the heart. What he's saying is that you are, you are the living letter of Christ to the world. You are the living letter of Christ to the world. So, wherever you are in your office, you are Christ's letter to the world. Are, are you here? Are, are you are not really here. I've not really begun my message. I want your concentration first. Okay. You are Christ's letter to the world. We are living epistles. So, wherever you are, for instance, if you are, you are in your office, you are his letter to your workmate. You are his love letter to your workmate. Or you are his love letter to his, your cosmate. You are his love letter everywhere. You are an epistle of Christ. All right. You being a testimony of the redemption. You being a manifest work of his redemption. In Acts chapter 1 verse 8. Acts chapter 1 verse 8. Acts chapter 1 verse 8. The Bible says, now the Lord Jesus, after he resurrected, before his ascension, he told his disciples, and ye shall receive power after that the Holy Ghost has come unto you, and ye shall be witnesses unto me, both in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and unto the uttermost part of the earth. So he said, when the Holy Ghost comes, you will be witnesses unto me. Can you say witnesses? You will be witnesses unto me. Now, what does it mean to be a witness? What does it mean to be a witness? You will be witnesses unto me. The Act 1.8 says, we will be witnesses. Now, Jesus did not say, you will go and do witnessing. But you will be a witness. He did not say you will go and do witnessing or you will go and witness. He, he said you will be the witness. And there's a difference. There's a difference. So the emphasis of Jesus is that you, the believer, you, the believer, become, you become a witness of what he has done. You become a witness of his work. You become a testimony of what he has done. You will be a witness. He shall be a witness. You will be his testimony. So wherever you are, men must see you and go like, wow, Jesus is Lord. Wow, 
God is good. Wow. God is love. So by your very personality, your very personality must be a witness. It's like a witness in a court. You are a proof producer. Praise God. Of course, we have to go and witness. We have to go and preach. But the emphasis there is you being. He shall be. Not he shall do. He shall be. So in the Greek, the word is not imperative. It is indicative. Now, in the Greek tense, imperative means it's a command. But indicative means it's a statement of fact. You will be. You will become. So all of us are to become witnesses in this city. All of us are are to become. Our lives must display. Must testify. Hallelujah. That's what it means. Years ago, there used to be a Baptist pastor in Atlanta. He was called Dr. Houghton. Dr. Houghton, that, that was his name. And some people hired a private detector to follow him to investigate his conduct. So this private detector followed him wherever he was, secretly, not openly, to verify his conduct. After a few weeks, the detector gave his life to Christ. Can you imagine? But the goal was to fish out something evil, something bad, or something fishy the man was doing. But after a few weeks, the detector gave his life to Christ. He said, the man's life is so awesome. That's a good testimony. (laughs) Hallelujah. That's a good testimony. In the days of Wesley, there used to be a man by name, Father Fenelon. They called him Fenelon. He was a remarkable Christian. And one day he happened to be in a room with an unbeliever, someone who never liked Christianity. Somewhere, somehow, they happened to be we sleep in the same room. But the next morning, the man said, I will never be in the same room with this man again. If I stay another day with this man, I'll be a Christian. <laughs> what a powerful testimony. <laughs> yeah. Because sometimes, your life can be so loud that nobody's hearing what you are saying. Yeah, that is why you yourself must be the first witness before anything you do. In the last century, years ago, there used to be a man in India called Sadhu Sudasing, the early 1900s. One day in a village in India, he knocked at a door of a certain house, and a little child opened the door. And when the child opened the door, the child saw the man and closed the door and ran to tell her, her mom that someone is at the door. And the man asked, who is at the door? The child smiled and said, I can't tell. But the man's face is so lovely that it must be Jesus. <laughs> Hallelujah. Look, you can be so lovely in your workplace that your life exudes with divine fragrance. Yeah, you bring heaven where you are. Everyone goes like, there's something about this guy. There's something attractive about this guy. That's a testimony. That's a powerful testimony. And there used to be a man by the name Robert Murray. Machine. 
Robert Murray. Now, he worked with God so much that when people saw him, literally, they went on their knees and they gave their lives to Christ. People saw him and literally confessed Christ. That can be your testimony in Jesus' name. Years ago, T.L. Osborne entered into a shop, and the shop owner ran away. So he called, trying to call him back. Why are you running away? It's something on my face. He said, sir, nothing is on your face, but when you entered the shop, I didn't see your face. I saw the face of Jesus. And he said, don't worry. He's in my heart. Once in a while, he comes out to take fresh air. <laughs> Hallelujah. Praise God. <laughs> Hallelujah. All right. So let's see. Let me touch on a few of the evidences of redemption, the proofs, the fruits of redemption. Number one, the fruits of redemption. All right. Number one, the first one, we, we find it in Titus 2, verse 14. Titus 2, verse 14. Who gave himself for us? that he might redeem us from all iniquity and purify unto himself a peculiar people, zealous of good works. Now you see the word redeem here? Who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from all iniquity? He gave himself for us that he might redeem us from all iniquity and purify unto himself, purify unto himself a peculiar people, zealous of good works. So here, he redeemed us from all iniquity. Now, one of the signs of the redeemed is that he has victory over sin. That he has victory over iniquity. Because he has been redeemed from iniquity. So you become that testimony. He has been redeemed. So, victory over sin. Victory. Now, the word redeem here is the word lutro. Lutro. In the Greek. Now, lutro in the Greek literally means receipts, release upon the receipt of ransom. Release, release upon the receipt of ransom. Release upon the receipt of ransom. Release upon the receipt of ransom. Now, what does it mean? Now, in those days, in, in, in Bible days, and even in history, those days, the days of the slave trade. What happened was that slaves were sold in the marketplace. Just as you go to the market to buy foodstuffs, you could go to the market to buy slaves, human beings. So you go to the market and slaves were displayed. You know, they were sold by auction sales. So the highest bidder will buy the slave. So one will say, oh, I will buy him for $10,000. Another person will say, $50,000. These are human beings. So the highest bidder will buy the slave. The moment the slave is bought, they offer you receipt when you pay the money to redeem the slave. They offer you official receipt. That receipt of payment is what is called lutro. Now, the Bible says that Jesus, he gave himself for us that he might redeem us from all iniquity. And the receipt of ransom for us is his blood. The blood of Jesus is the receipt of payment. 
we have been brought, taken, redeemed, brought back from the marketplace of sin. Victory over sin. The first point I want to emphasize is that now, to have victory over sin, you must know how much you are forgiven. Because your deliverance from sin lies in the revelation of your forgiveness of sins. Hallelujah. Now, the guy was owing 10,000 talents. He couldn't pay. His mother said his wife and his children had to be sold to pay for the debt. And there was no way. He begged. The master forgave him. Now, do you know 10,000 talents? Now, how much money makes 10,000 talent? Jesus illustrated this parable to tell us how much we are forgiven. You know, a talent. In those days, um, the Romans, the Greeks, and the Jews, they used talent. It was measurement of weight. Now, they spent what was called penny. The penny, the denarii, the denarii and the drachmas. Now, if a laborer works for one full day, if you work for one full day, you get one penny. One penny is the wage for a day. Okay. Now, to be able to get money to pay for one talent, you know how much it takes? It takes 6,000 working days. It takes 6,000 working days to pay for one talent. <laughs> then, Jesus said the guy was owing how many talents? 10,000 talents. So mathematicians, <laughs> hallelujah, if one talent equals 6,000 working days, how much days will you need to work to pay for 10,000 talents? Is there any good mathematician here? <laughs> Amen, yeah, you are right, okay, doc, you are right. 60 million working days. You will need 60 million working days to gather the money to be able to pay that amount of debt. How, how many days do we spend on earth? <laughs> and to be able to pay for 60 million working days. No. So Jesus illustrated that for us to see how much God could forgive us. How much God forgive us. So he was forgiven. So who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from all? The word all actually is the word pass in, in the Greek, which means all inclusive with no exemption. <laughs> That's how much we have been forgiven. And Colossians 2 verse 13 talks about it. Having forgiven you all your trespasses. Having forgiven you all your trespasses. That's what Jesus has done. So Jesus forgive us our sins. Every one of them he forgive. First John 2 verse 12. Little children, these things write are unto you that you may know that your sins are forgiven. Are forgiven. And that word are forgiven is in the perfect tense. You know perfect tense? Permanent result. When we say something is perfect tense, it is past, present, and future. Perfect tense. That's how much we are forgiven. You can't, work, you can't pay for six million working days. He forgave us past, present, and future. When he died, all our sins were in the future. He forgave us. Do you know why it is important to know this? Let me show you why. 
in Ephesians 1 verse 7, the Bible says that in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace. Now you see, the word forgiveness, there is no word in English to have expressed the word forgiveness in the Greek. In the Greek, the word is aphesis. You see, the, the Greek words are more exact and so high that there is no equivalent English English word for aphesis, which is the Greek word for forgiveness. The closest word is forgiveness, but it's not just forgiveness. A lot of words are in it. You need to understand it. So, in whom we have forgiveness. The word forgiveness is aphesis. Never forget. Aphesis. So, when he forgave us, the word is what? It is spelled A-P-H. E-S-I-S, aphesis. And now, aphesis means to permanently dismiss. To permanently dismiss. He permanently dismissed our sins. It means to forfeit one's right to bring it again. That's aphesis. So we have been forgiven. Because of his blood. How much have you been forgiven? According to the riches of his grace. That's amazing. He didn't say out of the riches of his grace. If I have... $10 million and I give you $1 million. I have given you out of my riches. But if I line up all my riches for you, I've given you according to my riches. So we are forgiven according to the riches of His grace. Now, but the word aphesis, you know what it means? In Luke 4, verse 18, when Jesus said, The Spirit of the Lord, of the Lord God is upon me because He has anointed me to preach good tidings to the poor, to bind up the brokenhearted. He mentioned all that he has to do. Then he said, to preach deliverance to the captives. The word deliverance is the word aphesis. Deliverance to the captives. So forgiveness is deliverance. And to set at liberty them that are bound. Look for 18. The word liberty is aphesis. So aphesis occurs twice in the same verse. So aphesis means deliverance. Look, when God forgives you, he also delivers you. The two goes together. Because it's the same word. It is forgiveness, it is deliverance. You know what it means? Many people are struggling with a lot of sins in their lives. Some are struggling with masturbation. Some are struggling with pornography. Some are struggling with little, little gossip. Some are struggling with little, little lies. And uh, a lot of bondages and addictions. But this is it. In God's mind, forgiveness is deliverance. Until you know how much he has forgiven you, you will never be delivered from that sin. Any sin he has forgiven you of, once you know you are forgiven, the power for that sin to enslave you is broken. But if you hold on to guilt and condemnation, you become enslaved to that sin. Because forgiveness is deliverance. So when you preach forgiveness, you are preaching deliverance. Now, when Jesus paid the receipt of ransom, he took us out of the slave market. So the payment of the debt was deliverance from, from slavery. When he paid for our sins, he delivered us from it. Now, if we're owing someone and you cannot pay, whenever you see your creditor, you run away, true or false. Once you're owing your creditor, he has power. He can have the legal power to put you into prison. 
true or false? Because you are owing him. But once the debts are paid, all his power is nullified. Once all your sins have been paid for, sin has no right to enslave you. So when sin holds you, no, 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 no. Something is wrong. Once you are forgiven, except you don't know how much you are forgiven. But if you know Jesus forgave you, that revelation is your deliverance from captivity. Praise God. Now, now let me show you something that was done in the Old Testament. Can I get three people for illustration? Doc, you can come. You stand here as the high priest. Okay, you be the high priest. Okay. All right. Are you here with me? I want to just show you something in Leviticus chapter 4, but I want to dramatize it for you. Now, in those days, this is the law of the sin offering. Say the sin offering. This is the law of the sin offering. I want to just illustrate it for you. Okay, this is the high priest. Now, this is in Leviticus chapter 4. Because of time, we cannot read everything. Now, please stand here. I need someone who is smaller. Please sit down. Can that small boy come? Yes, come. Or your son. Last year, I used you, right? Let me use it this year, too. All right, so this man, please come. This man has sinned. This man has sinned. According to Leviticus 4, he's going to give his son offering. So he takes, he takes an animal. Okay, he takes an animal, a sheep. Then he presents his sheep before the high priest. Now when he presents it before the high priest... The high priest must examine the animal if it is without blemish. So he examines it. That's what was done in the Old Testament. Okay? Yeah. <laughs> now, have you realized that this man has sinned? But the high priest does not examine this man. He examines his offering. You have sinned. God doesn't examine you. He examines your offering, which is Christ. The offering shouldn't run away, please. <laughs> now, after he examines it, then he will come. This is the guy who has sinned. Please come in front of him. No, stand, stand in front, face him. No, you are facing. Uh-huh. You have sinned, so you will lay hands on him. Then all your sins are imputed unto him. After that, the high priest comes and takes a knife. The high priest comes and takes a knife. Then he'll give the knife to you. The high priest doesn't kill the animal for you. He gives a knife to you for you to kill the animal. Because God wanted, wants us to know. The high priest doesn't kill the animal. He gives the, the knife to you. Because God wants us to know that we, our sons, killed Christ. Uh-huh. So give him, give him the knife. All right. Okay, so after that, now look at something that happens. Now, so why are all your sons beyond the animal? But that's not all. After that, the priest, can you, can you carry him? Carry him. See why I, I made a small boy come. The priest will now carry the slain beast 
outside the camp, outside the tabernacle. So come outside the tabernacle. Come here. And remember, all your sons are now on the beast. So he will take him there. The Bible says that outside the camp and burn the animal into ashes. And when he burns the animal into ashes, he will gather the ashes and put the ashes into a clean place. Hallelujah. So, this is the high priest. So, the animal, the offering is burnt. It is burnt to ashes. Now, can you say ashes? Ashes. Thank you very much. Now, let me show you. Let me explain. Thank you. God bless you. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Now, to fully understand this, compare Leviticus 4 and Numbers 19. Now, this is it. Now, the ashes. Why the ashes? So, Prophet Juma, come again. Okay. Prophet Juma, come. All right. So now, this one has the ashes. Why the ashes? The ashes must be preserved. And all of this deals with Christ. Now, please come. Man of God, please come. Now, look at what happened in those days. Now, this man comes back to God. That he is defiled. I'm defiled. Numbers 19. So he stands before the Lord. No one happens. He's defiled. Now, know what God does. Then God now tells the priest to take the ashes and pour it on him. Mix with water and pour it on him. They call it the water of purification. The ashes come on him. Why? 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 Now, you see how heavy this thing is? If I use this thing to hit your head 70 times, what will happen to you? 70, even 7 times, you may collapse because it is heavy. But when I bend this in ashes and pour it on you, what will you feel? You don't feel anything. And also, you know what God is saying? He is defiled, but the ashes are poured on him. You know what God is saying? Sin has lost its power on you. When your substitute died, sin lost its power. If I use wood to hit your head, your head will break. But when the wood is bent, it is reduced to ashes. When I pour the ashes on you, the ashes cannot have dominion over you. So now, Remember, the ashes are your sons. What are your sons? These ashes tells you, it's a testimony. Ashes are the final irreducible state of matter. They are for God's testimony, for you to know that your sons have lost its power. Sin has lost its force. Sin has lost its life. They are merely burned out cinders. They are empty shells. They have lost their power. They have lost their dominion. So God pours it on you for you to see that the sin you think you are struggling with cannot dominate you. Praise God. Why? Why, why ashes? The fire has finished its work. Sin has already been judged. <laughs> so sin cannot have dominion over you. So the Bible says, sin shall not have dominion over you. Because ye are not under the law, but under grace. So brethren, when Jesus died, this is what happened. 
But you need to have the consciousness that sin has lost its power. Did Jesus die? Yes. Did he conquer sin? Yes. Is it ashes? Yes. Can it prevail over me? Depends on your revelation. If you can see what God sees. To become an evidence because he has already redeemed us from all iniquity. They are just ashes. Son, they are just ashes. They should not be able to dominate you. Hallelujah. Thank you very much, sir. Thank you. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Okay. If Jesus has accomplished this, why are many believers captives to sin? So many reasons. There are so many factors. One of them, guilt and condemnation. Anytime you live in guilt and condemnation, sin regains its power over you. The Bible says, Romans 8.1, There is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus. That, that word condemnation, you know what it means? The Greek says strengthlessness. Strengthlessness. As an unbeliever, you are without strength to overcome sin. That, but that moment where you are without strength in Christ, there is no more strengthlessness for sin. But the more you condemn yourself, the more you are without strength to overcome what puts you down. Condemnation is self-righteousness. It is putting your trust in your own works instead of the blood. Although you have sinned, you are putting your trust in your good works, trying to repay with your good works the wrong you did instead of trusting in his blood. Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Look at, look at the procedure. Neither do I condemn you, then go and sin no more. We change it. We change it. We say, we say, Go and sin no more so that you will not be condemned. That's what we say. We say go and sin no more so that you will not be condemned. But Jesus gave her the gift of no condemnation. And when she knows she's not condemned, she can go and sin no more. Do do you understand? Neither do I condemn you. So now that I'm not condemned, I can go and sin no more. If you are condemned, look, you'll swim in it. But the next thing is that, one reason why believers are captive to sin is this, is the law. The law. The Bible says that in Romans 6, 14, for sin shall not have dominion over you. Why? Because ye are not under the law. What does it mean? So under the law, sin will have dominion over you. It's simple English. For sin shall not have dominion over you because ye are not under the law. But under grace. So when you come back under the law, son will now what have dominion over you. Have you ever read First Corinthians 15, verse 56? See what it says. It says, The sting, the sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. Have you ever read that? The strength of sin is the law. The Greek says, the dunamis of sin is the law. What empowers sin is the law. And the law is holy. The law is righteous. 
But the Lord that cannot help you to be holy and righteous. The Lord is like a mirror. A mirror can expose all your shortcomings. Look, all the things that are in your face. But the mirror will not help you fix what is on your face. When you look into the mirror, you know all your problems. But the mirror doesn't help you. So the Bible says that, and the strength of sin be the law. Simple. Anytime you try to use your strength and effort to stop sin, you fail. Now, the law has to do it. The law employs your strength, your flesh, your effort, your energies to overcome sin. And no one can do that. No one can do that. No one can do that. And the law is wild. If you read Galatians 3 verse 10, the Bible says that, Curse is every man. As many as are of the works of the law are under a curse. Not as many as break the law. As many as are of works of the law are under a curse. As it is, it is written. Curse is any man who continueth not in the things written in the law. What it means is that with the law, if you break one, you've broken all. Understand? Break one, you've broken all. And the law is not ten commandments. There are 613 laws. 613 laws. You know, when you break one, you've broken all. For instance, you can commit clothing adultery. Clothing adultery. Under the law, your underwear can be cotton. And you, you, your outward garment can be linen. Breaking the law. Committed clothing adultery. And if you have broken one, you've broken all. Under the law, you don't so mix, mingle seats, different seats in your garden. Breaking the law. And when you break the law, the law must actually bring a curse on you. Because if the law does not bring a curse on you, then the law is not the law. For the law to be the law, the law must enforce what it says. Do you? Now, you know why? The best way for a believer to reign over sin. James chapter 1 verse 22 to 24, 25. The Bible says that. Be not hearers of the word only. Be doers of the word. Not hearers only. Deceiving yourselves. If any man be a hearer of the word, and not a doer of the word, the Bible says that he is like unto a man beholding his natural face in a mirror. He beholds himself and goes his way and straightway he he forgets the manner of man he was. Simple. The man who cannot do God's work, God's will, the man who forgets who he is. So it's about identity. He forgets who he is. Identity crisis, identity problem. Because the Bible says he sees himself in a mirror and goes, but he forgets. What is the mirror? It's the word of God. So he can read the Bible every day and yet still live in sin. You know why? Because of how you read your Bible. He beholds himself and go and forget. He beholds himself in the word. The word is a mirror. But he goes and forgets. Why? Because he just reads and goes. Many Christians don't love meditation. But the one who continues therein. See, the word can be in the mind and not get sown in the heart. Uh, People are so quick. They are quick to go to work, to go to school. So they just read the Bible to bribe their conscience that they have also done their quiet time. 
very quick. But they go and they, they forget the manner of man they are. They go and complain and mama. The economy is hard. They just read that they are citizens of heaven. They live by heaven's economy. And they go and complain how hard life is. The Bible says you are deceiving yourself. It doesn't tally. They see who they are in Christ. They go out there and they are different. <laughs> the problem is this. If he behold, the Bible says that he behold his natural face. The Greek says, Genesis prosopon. The Greek says, he beholds the face of his birth. What is the face of your birth? Not your physical birth, your new birth. He beholds the face of his birth. When you were born again, you had a new face. You behold who you are in Christ. Wow, this is me. He made me righteous, he made me holy. But when you go, you can't be holy, you can't be righteous because you lost the picture of your identity. You can't manifest who you are. The face of your birth, you see who he made you. But you should continue beholding. It's like one beholding himself in the mirror. Now, in the Greek, the mirror here is not... No, in our hotel room, there's a big mirror. You can see your whole body. But the mirror here in James 1, 22, 23, is the small mirror. The small mirrors women used in their backs, put in their backs. That's a Greek word. The little mirrors women use in their backs. Do you, do you have any woman here having a mirror in his back? Little, little mirrors. Women always carry mirrors. You left it home. That kind of mirror cannot... See, with, with, with that little mirror, you can't see your whole body. You have to see yourself. You just have to see your head and turn it here and turn it and turn it. You keep turning, 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 turning before you can see some part of you. That's a Greek word. So you have to constantly be beholding, beholding yourself in the mirror of the word. Then you can see completely who you are in Christ. <laughs> Hallelujah. Because the problem with the Corinthians, the Corinthians, you know their problem? Corinthians. Corinth was a very wild city. Corinth was built by Julius Caesar. It was built to, to promote the sex industry. Corinth was a very wild place. It was built in honor of the goddess Aphrodite for prostitution and for those seeking a sex vacation. Corinth. And Paul went in right there to start a church. <laughs> that, that's wild. So these guys were born again. Once in a while, there were temples for prostitution in Corinth. So once in a while, they would go to the temple and, you know, do one of those things. But the, this boy in Christ. So Paul said, when Paul realized that, you know his response. Paul didn't even say, you wretched, rebellious sons of the dust. No. You know, you know how? <laughs> Paul said, know ye not that your body is a temple. of Know ye not. So it was a problem of identity. Know ye not. So they didn't know that, oh, so this body is a temple of God. And the word temple in the nows in the Greek is the word for holies of holies. Yeah, there are two words. It's not the outward precinct. Your body is the holies of holies. Why? Your body enshrines deity. The Holy Ghost himself lives in your body. He said, no, you're not. So the reason why they were doing all those things is because they never knew who they were. Crisis. And the church was so carnal that they were suing each other in court. They were suing each other in court. And Paul said, ah. What do you mean? Is there no wise man among you? Don't you know that, that we shall judge angels? Are you not ready to judge small matters among you? And you take it to the unbelievers to judge such matters. 
identity. Some of them were saying, I'm for Paul. Another one says, I'm for Peter. Another one says, I'm for Apollos. He said, what are you saying? All things are yours. Whether Paul or Cephas or Apollos or the world or things present or, or riches or, or death or life or things to come, all are yours and ye are Christ and Christ is God's identity. Hallelujah. That's it. Listen. Mark 4, 28. For the earth bringeth forth fruits of herself. First the blade, then the year, after that the full corn in the year. For the earth bringeth forth fruits of herself. And when you plant a seed, it comes naturally, is that not so? For the earth bringeth forth fruits of herself. Jesus is speaking about the parable of the sower. Earth bringeth forth fruits of herself. Now the word herself is a Greek word, automatos. Where we get the word Automatic, automatic. The earth brings forth fruit automatically. When you plant seeds, it comes up automatically. Listen, if we're able to plant the word in your spirit, you will live God's life automatically. You know our problem, for instance, if you realize that, ah, of late, you are struggling with lust. Like, when you see a lady, you want to, Look at the woman, but something say, continue looking, continue looking. You cannot turn your head. You are struggling. What do you do? You don't go like, hmm. You don't, you don't take a decision to stop. Of course, you have to stop. But sometimes the decision does not work. You know what you have to do? Go and sit on the word. And digest on scriptures concerning lust, adultery, and fornication. And Meditate. You bring forth fruit automatically because you are implanting the word. So instead of trying to use your ability and strength, no, 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 no. Years ago, I was struggling with anger. Then I, I took scriptures on anger. When I go to Ecclesiastes 7, I realized that the Bible says that be not hasty in thy spirit to be angry, for anger resteth in the bosom of fools. That word fools delivered me. As I mean, I can't, I can't be a fool. Hey! So the anger refused to rest on me. If it comes, it must go, but I shouldn't rest. So is the word, because you are born of the word, that to stir you up to overcome. For instance, you are, you are not giving. You realize that giving is hard. Go and take scriptures on giving and meditate. For instance, you realize that you have a problem with honoring, respect, anything at all. The key is the word. And the fruit will come automatically. That is how to live under grace. Amen. So the evidence, the evidence of the redemptive work of Christ, he says he gave himself for us that he might redeem us from all iniquity. We have been redeemed from all iniquity. So you should not struggle with sin again. Never get yourself into guilt and know how much you are forgiven. Own your forgiveness in Christ. Own it. Once you own it, you can never be a captive. Own your identity in Christ. And own the word. I'm telling you, your life will be full of joy and peace and restfulness. You become an evidence. You become an advertisement of the new creation. You become a good advertisement of the new creation. Because whenever people see you, you'll be smiling. If you are always sad, you are a poor advertisement of the new creation. 
Know why? Therefore, shall the, red- the redeemed of the Lord shall return and come with singing unto Zion. <laughs> and everlasting joy shall be upon their head. They shall obtain joy and gladness, and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. One son of the redeemed, joy and gladness, and everlasting joy shall be upon your head. We are redeemed. We are full of joy. <laughs> Everywhere we go, we are smiling. <laughs> when Jesus rose from the dead, when he met the woman in Matthew 28 verse 9, the first words that fell from the lips of the resurrected Lord was, All hail. All hail. Literally, rejoice. Why? Rejoice. The work is done. It is finished. It has been accomplished. Rejoice. Hallelujah. Rejoice. Number two, the second evidence is this. Galatians chapter 3, verse 13. Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law. Being made a curse for us, for it is written, curse is every man that hangeth upon the tree. Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law. Being made a curse for us, for it is written, curse is any man that hangeth upon the tree. We are redeemed from the curse of the law. Now, what is it? It's written, curse is every man that hangs on the tree. What is the tree? The cross. Why did Jesus die on the cross? Is it to shed, shed his blood? Not really. Why was he on the cross? After all, he shed his blood in seven places. Most of the places was not even on the cross. No, the cross was part. For instance, he first shed his blood in his sweat in Gethsemane. He shed, the first place he shed his blood was in Gethsemane, in his sweat. Number two, the Bible says that they beat him the palms of their hands. Conversion said with a fist of their hands, but the Greek says with rot, rot, rot. He smashed his face with rot. That's the second place where blood came from. Number three, they sketched him, not a sketching, they flogged him. The scourging was not with cane. It was what was called a filgrim. It was a, steady, a leather steady handle with 12 parts. And the edges are jagged with pieces of metals and bones and sharp stones and glasses. So when it touches you, it was 12. It, it separates the skin from the flesh. And Eusebius, the historian, said, when it is done, sometimes your veins and arteries can be seen. Yeah. <laughs> That's the next place to shed his blood. Fourth place to shed his blood is Isaiah 50, verse 6. I give my back to the smiters <laughs> and my face to them that pluck off the beard. He plucked his beard away. They plucked his beard. Blood came. The next place to shed his blood was a crown, the crown of thorns. They pressed it on his scalp, shed his blood. Then the fifth place was on the cross. His hands and his feet. That's the sixth place. The seventh place was on its side. He shed his blood in seven places. That is why in Leviticus, the blood was sprinkled seven times. And when he shed his blood, Jesus actually collected his blood from all the places where it was shed. He shed his blood in Gethsemane. He shed his his blood in the Praetorium. He shed his blood in the house of Caiaphas. He shed his blood in Golgotha. He collected all. Any place his blood dropped, or wherever he shed his blood, you were redeemed. For instance, why did he shed his blood in a sweat? Redeem us from stress. 
Because sweat is stress in the Bible. To redeem us from stress. Stress can be very dangerous. The word for sick in Hebrew is koli. It comes from the word kara, which means to be worn out, to be stressed. So in Hebrew etymology, sickness comes from stress. Ah. Then Jesus, look, they smashed his face. According to Isaiah 52, verse 14, the Bible says that his face was marred than any other man. He was disfigured than the sons of men. He shed his blood on his face to restore your identity and dignity. He was scourged for your healing. He took the crown of thorns to redeem you from the curse of the earth. So you don't struggle when you work. His hands was pierced, but the work of your hands can be blessed. His leg was pierced, so you can walk with God gloriously and in the way of peace. So Jesus shed his blood, but why, why the cross? One of the reasons why he had to, he had to be on the cross. Understand this, among the Jews, putting someone on the cross wasn't the capital punishment of the Jews. It was a capital punishment of the Romans. For the Jews, stoning was their capital punishment. Stoning. But Jesus wasn't stoned. He had to be put on a tree. Because why? When you break the laws, ultimately, you have to be hanged on a tree. Because we have broken the laws, Jew or Gentiles, because we have the law contained in our heart. We broke the laws, he had to be hanged on a tree to become a curse. He became a curse. Can you imagine? Not that he was cursed. He became a curse for you to take your place. But Jesus became a curse. He wasn't cursed. That's why I can tell you that you are not blessed. But he was not cursed. He became a curse. So now you are a blessing. <laughs> Hallelujah. God wants us to be a blessing, not just blessed. Many Christians are selfish. They just want to be blessed. We are called to be a blessing. If you can pay the fees of your children, you are blessed. If you can feed your family, you are blessed. But if you can pay the fees of other children and put and give food to other families, now you've gone beyond being blessed to being a blessing. Our calling is not just to be blessed, but to be a blessing. Praise God. The Bible says Christ has redeemed us. See, I am redeemed. From what? From the curse of the law. For your information, in Deuteronomy 28, 27, 28, how many curses are there under the law? How many? 54. 54. 54 curses. <laughs> there are 54 curses under the law. Of these 54 curses, 34 is on poverty. <laughs> of these 54 cases in Deuteronomy, 34 addresses poverty. And the rest addresses sicknesses, diseases doctors cannot heal. Sicknesses and diseases, long continuance. Then spiritual death. The second death, which is the lake of fire. Jesus Christ has redeemed us from the case of the law. How do you imagine? So he has redeemed us from poverty and from sickness and from the lake of fire. Hey! Christ has redeemed us from the case of the law. The word redeemed here is not, it's, it's ex agorazo. There are different words for redemption. Ex agorazo means when you get, get a slave, 
when you pay for the slave, you don't keep him there. You bring him out of the marketplace. So Christ has brought us out of the marketplace of poverty and sickness. <laughs> Remember when Israel was redeemed? Israel. In Psalm 105, verse 37. The Bible says, when they came out of Egypt, he brought them forth. He brought them forth also with the silver, with the gold. He brought them forth also with the silver and with the gold. And there was not one feeble person among all their tribes. What does it mean? What does it mean to bring them forth with silver and gold? Can we call it wealth? Can we call it God's provision? And there was not one feeble person among all their tribes. Can we call it health? That's health. So he redeemed them with wealth and health. Health is very important. Health is the second greatest redemptive blessing in the Bible. The first greatest redemptive blessing is forgiveness. The second is health. Psalm 103. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that's within me. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. What are they? One, who forgiveth all thine iniquities. Two, who healeth all your diseases. So the first is forgiveness. The second is health. But if you are down, how can you even win souls? How can you serve God if your health is down? So health is part of the redemptive package. Health is part of it. So if you are always at the hospital, January, February, March, April, 2020, 2021, 20, every time, you are not a good advertisement the redemption. If you are always begging, you are not also a good advertisement because you should have enough. You see, as a seed of Abraham, you should have enough. Prosperity comes with a purpose. Now, how much can you eat? We, to bless others, to build churches, Hallelujah. The Bible says he redeemed us from all iniquity. He gave himself for us that he might redeem us from all iniquity. And purified unto himself a peculiar people, zealous of good works. Zealous of good works. Taking care of others. Listen, if you don't believe in health and wealth, your purpose in serving God may be defeated. I'm telling you, there are so many things your church cannot do. There are so many lives you cannot bless. But when money is in the right hands, the kingdom is glorified. This is his redemption. You must be sin free, but you must also be poverty free. You must also be sickness free and disease free. Now this is a very, in 2017, the total expenditure in America paid for health care was $3.5 trillion. Health. That's why you must be on communion diet. Communion diet. Health is for you. For you. It's a package. Find out what is yours. You are the seed of Abraham. The question is that why are so many Christians poor? Cannot even feed their own families. Listen, in Second Peter chapter 1, 
verse 2 and verse 3. Verse 3 says, According as his divine power has given us all things that pertains unto life and godliness. The Bible says that God's power has given us everything that pertains to life and God. You know what it means? The word life there is Zoe. The word godliness there is Eusebius. The word there is for anything you ever need in life. It's a generic word. Your life, whether it is health, whether it is peace, it is, the way is a generic term for life. Everything you ever need for life. He said he already deposited it here. That is the word Zoe. And you Zebeas, you Sabas, good worship. Everything you ever need to live a good Christian life, he already gave it to you. That means that as far as God is concerned, there is no lack with you. Because he has given you enough to enjoy life and enough to serve him. But why don't we see it? So the same verse, 2 Peter 1 verse 3, according as his divine power has given us all things that pertains unto life and godliness. Through the knowledge of him, it's accessible by the knowledge of him who has called us to glory and virtue. The knowledge. So we are Christians, but we are not seeing the benefit of redemption. Through the knowledge of him. First Peter 1 verse 3. The word knowledge is epignosis. See, two words, epi and gnosis. Gnosis is to be expert in knowledge. But when you add epi, E-P-I, to gnosis, epi is an intensifier. It means precise knowledge, accurate knowledge, exact knowledge. That's why the Bible must be open to you. You get a precise knowledge of God, of Jesus. You can live the good Christian life. Enjoy it. That is why. Why are many Christians poor? Simple. God's prosperity plan is not a promise. God's prosperity plan is not a promise. So it, it is not. It, so you don't answer to it by prayer. You don't answer to it by fasting. You can pray all your life and be broke. You can fast all, all your life and be broke. God's prosperity plan is a covenant. It's a covenant of wealth. But thou shalt remember the Lord thy God because it is he that giveth thee power to get wealth that he may establish the covenant which he swore unto the fathers as it is this day. Covenant is between two people. Yeah, he does his part, you do your part. It's a covenant of giving. Giving. Giving to God. Many Christians spend, don't pay their tithe. Many Christians don't pay their first fruit, they don't pay their tithe. Sunday offering, they give God leftovers. Uh-huh. They tip God. They give tips to God. You know, as you tip, when you go to the restaurant, they will give tips to the waiters. Don't come and tip God. God doesn't need your tips. Prepare an offering for his honor. Give to your parents. Honor your parents. <laughs> you have to give to your pastor. You have to give to the poor. If you follow God's plan and the kingdom principles, you never lack. Hallelujah. Follow it. Christians do it, but it must be addi- addictive, consistent. And you know what will happen? Before you realize, your own personal ministry will be increasing. Before you realize, you are blessing families. I'm telling you. Hallelujah. Then, God has also redeemed us from death. Hosea 13, verse 14. 
He redeemed us from death. He redeemed us from death. He redeemed us from death. God says, I will ransom them from the power of the grave and I will redeem them from death. Oh, death, I'll be that plagues. Oh, grave, I'll be that distraction. Repentance is hid from my eyes. That means, the believer, you cannot die like a chicken dies. You cannot just get accident and die anyhow. Because he has conquered death for us. Hallelujah. He conquered death for us. He conquered death for us. Someone says, I have to live up to 70 years. Because Psalm 90 said, the days of our lives are 70. But if by reason of strength, they become 80. Yet, it's our strength, labor, and sorrow. Did God give us 70? Psalm 90, you have to take it from context. It's the prayer of Moses. Moses was giving a narrative history of their days under the law. And he said, when they were under the law, they were under God's wrath. And when they were under God's wrath, they didn't go beyond 80. They lived 70, and the best of them lived up to 80. Said they were under, to read Psalm 90, they were under God's wrath. The believer today is not under God's wrath. So 70 is not our mark. Hallelujah. It's not our mark. Someone will say, how about 120 years? As, uh, uh, Genesis 6 verse 3. My spirit will no longer strive with man, seeing that he also is flesh. His days shall be 120. When God said, your days will be 120, that was spoken in judgment. It was spoken in judgment. But that's when he said, your days will be 120. But in Christ, the Bible says that we have passed from judgment. Judgment is behind us. How long should you live? The believer must live. You must live in Psalm 91. Never live in Psalm 90. Live in Psalm 91. Psalm 91 says, with long life will I satisfy him. And show him my salvation. Not that God will be satisfied. He said, you will be satisfied. So God asks you, my son, is 80 okay? Uh, I'm not satisfied. Daddy, let's, let's make it 90. Is, is it okay? This is your satisfaction. And show him my salvation. Listen, the word salvation in Hebrew there is Yeshua. And show him my Yeshua. Yeshua in English, in English is Jesus. The long life lies satisfy him and show him my Jesus. So the reason, of, the reason for long life is to see more of Jesus. Yeah. The reason I want to live long is that I need to know him more. I need to work for him more. Yeah. Yeah. Some believers just want to die and go home. No, heaven, we, we are there with him in eternity. But this is our time to serve him and to impact him here. So don't be in a hurry to go home. Hallelujah. <laughs> Paul, Paul said, ah, should I go or should I be here? He said, for the furtherance of your faith, I'll be here. Hallelujah. For God be the glory. Hallelujah. Brethren, look, Jesus never died to produce weaklings. Jesus never died to produce defeated men. He died to produce conquerors. The Bible says we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. Why are you so sad? Why are you so depressed? Why are you so down? Why are you murmuring? 
Why are you complaining? Why are you full of sorrow? Why are you? Jesus died. No, he said it is finished. It's truly finished. Everything in the Bible is true. Everything he redeemed you from is true. We believe it. Explore the word of God and live it. This is our time. Lift up your hand and praise and glorify his name. Oh, can you be on your feet? Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Oh, what a glory. 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 Lift up your hands. Lift up your hands. Everything you've heard. God bless you for listening. Maranatha, the Lord comes.